I thought for a minute we didn't have the mic on, and I don't speak very loud. I would apologize for keeping you as long as I kept you uh, yesterday evening, but uh, I see no point in it. Uh, there you go. <laughs> and the reason I see no point is because I might do it again. So I don't believe we'll be here hardly as long as this hour, but I'm not making any rash promises. You want to go into, uh, uh, let's, let's start in the last verse in Genesis 5, and I'll very briefly uh, bring us up to chapter 9. And I want to uh, emphasize again how the genealogies uh, are set up. Well, not the genealogies so much as uh, Noah lived uh, 500 years and begat uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they're listed in the reverse order of their birth. That would be in the last verse of chapter 5. I'll just let you look at them as I go through them. And we can know that all three of those sons were not born when Noah was 500 years old, that uh, the, uh, the eldest would be Japheth, and we can know that, that is, he's listed last, they're listed in the reverse order of the manner in which they were born. Shem, Ham, Japheth. Japheth was born first, then Ham, then Shem. We can know that because when you get up to chapter 11, the genealogy of uh, Shem, that he was uh, uh, 100 years old, a couple or three years, uh, uh, that, well, he was 100, he was either, either uh, I'd better read. I'd better read the verse. Turn to. Uh, I'll get all tongue-tied here, and uh, I was about to twist things up. Look at eleven ten. These are the generations of Shem. Shem went a hundred years old, and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. Well, back in chapter five, but we find that Noah begat three sons at the age of five hundred. But really, he didn't. He begat one son at the age of 500, possibly two. Ham could have been a twin of Japheth, born second. We don't know that. But he didn't beget Shem at the age of 500. He begat Shem at either 502 or 3, depending on how you understand the verse we just read, when the flood, whether it's referring to the beginning or the end of the flood. The flood lasted while they were in the ark, uh, 371 days from the time the water began to come down and the time that uh, they uh, departed the ark, so approximately one year. Then we can know that uh, Ham wasn't the oldest because Ham in uh, Genesis 9 is referred to as a younger son. So the order evidently is reversed, and we can see that same thing again in chapter 11, relative to Abraham, Terah, the father of Abraham, lived 70 years and begat three sons. Abraham is listed first, but if we keep on reading and go into chapter 12, we find that Abraham wasn't really born until 70 years later, at the, when Terah was 130 years old. Well, now I've pointed that out to point out something about today's lesson. Go into chapter 9, and let's look at something uh, relative to, uh, well, it's right at the end of chapter 8 that I want to look at a verse. Then we'll get into chapter 9. 
I need to change glasses. I can see that I was, I was trying to see something that was fuzzy. I need my Bible to be clear and uh, you people to be a little fuzzy. But don't take that too literally except my Bible. All right, at the end of the flood, let me get my uh, scripture here. You know, I'm looking for something. I'm not finding it. Let me, uh, maybe I should, uh, maybe I should tell about, I'll just tell a story while I'm looking for it, and uh, I'll be looking for it and telling the story. All right, I went into the restaurant yesterday morning, and uh, the restaurant in the motel where we are, uh, it's one of these type, uh, not really a restaurant, it's a, a continental breakfast type. There were three, uh, no, six, six siblings uh, having uh, breakfast together. They're down here from a northern state, and I got to talking to one of them, and I said, you know, something about the food here is not uh, all that much, and uh, said, I think I might go over here to Cracker Barrel. He, I was just joshing with him, just talking about, uh, uh, just, just to break, make, uh, make conversation, so to speak. He said, well, I'll go with you. Well, that opened, that opened another door. I said, well, I'll tell you what, after I go to Cracker Barrel, I'm going somewhere else. You want to go with me there? And uh, he said, where are you going? I said, well, I'm preaching out here at church. Just silence. You know, you kind of lose them when, uh, when they get to, to that uh, point. Now I've been looking for what I've been uh, looking for. It's at the end of the flood. Let's just, let's just read a little bit. I'm... Uh, Man alive, why in the world can't I find this, this verse? All right. Well, let's just, let's just uh, talk a little bit. It's, it's, uh, what I'm looking for is they're coming out of the uh, ark. All right. It's, um, oh, I see it now. I see exactly what I want. It's in 9.18. But I need to say a little bit about something before we get to 9.18. I knew if I told the story and looked long enough, I could find it, and I found it. Now, when uh, at the end of the 371 days, when they came out of the ark, by the way, where did the ark settle? Well, we're not told. Probably down in the lowlands somewhere. It settled somewhere, evidently, west of the area where Babylon, uh, a son, a descendant of Ham, uh, built uh, Babylon along with some other cities. Uh, we would call it, well, it's referred to as the Plain of Shinar because they migrated eastward to that point. Now, this, uh, there could have been a period of time where the ark settled, say, uh, in a more northerly direction or southerly direction, but at this point when they migrated east and uh, descendants, uh, descendant of Ham built uh, these uh, cities, that uh, you can't say for sure the ark settled west of Babylon, but I'm just, uh, that's somewhat of an inference. Uh, we know that it didn't settle on top of a mountain, and it seemed to have settled in the lowlands because Noah and uh, his family, along with the animals, didn't come out of the ark until the earth was dried. 
Now, if it had settled on top of a mountain, they could have come out of the ark much earlier than that because the earth would have, as the waters went down, the earth around them would have become dried over a matter of several months. That's why I say evidently in the lowerlands because the ark settling in the lowerlands, the flood completely over, the earth dried, then they came out of the ark. After a total of 371 days in the ark from the time that the waters began to come down. Now the first thing that Noah did when he came out of the ark was uh, to build an altar, offer sacrifices unto the Lord. Then in chapter 9 we find the Lord uh, making a covenant with Noah, not only with Noah, his family, all flesh, uh, even, even the animal kingdom that he would never again flood the earth. Now you can know by that that this was not a local flood because we have local floods all the time. And God has promised never again to flood the earth with water. There's one thing he didn't promise at this time. He didn't say anything about burning the earth with fire, which is what's going to happen. This earth you live upon about a thousand and a few years from now is going to be completely destroyed. See, I already have the timeline. I'm saying that because of the nearness we are to the Lord's return. There's seven years right out ahead of us somewhere. The period of time between now and that seven years, if I knew that, I could probably give you, well, I could. I could give you the uh, year time until this earth would be destroyed. I couldn't break it down into days, but... I could, I could undoubtedly give you within uh, the year. But that's all been hidden from us, and I'm just saying somewhere out ahead, uh, looks like it's a little over a thousand years from now and seven days, plus the period between now and when Daniel's 70th week begins. That would, that would give you the exact time, but you don't know the uh, period of time between now and when Daniel's 70th week will begin. That is the unfulfilled 70th week of Daniel. You find in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. God set a rainbow in the sky, and he said, when I look upon this uh, rainbow, I'll remember my covenant between you all, the whole of creation, that I'll not again flood the earth. Years ago, I used to, uh, I was in the Navy at the time, mid-50s. I was stationed on the East Coast, and uh, I used to like to go out and up and down the East Coast in the summertime and kind of follow Oliver Green with his tent. Uh, uh, very, uh, well, I just call him a good fundamental evangelist of that day when tent ministries were still in use. And... Uh, he, I call attention to Oliver Green. Many of, the, many of you would recognize that name. He died in the mid-70s. Uh, his radio broadcast is still being carried on by one of his sons. Uh, he, he made a statement one time. He said, I always like to look at a rainbow because I know that God is looking at that rainbow. And it's a promise right here in Genesis 9 that he is. I will look upon it and remember my covenant. Now we're after we're at a time after the flood, and within the typology seen here, back in chapter eight, we had Noah and his family above the Ararat mountain range, typifying Israel having come through the tribulation, 
the mountains below the flood waters, Israel, Noah and his family above, typifying the mountains for uh, symbolic or typifying world kingdoms out ahead. A mountain signifies a kingdom, and there the ark was set above these mountains, picturing Israel as Israel will be in that coming day as God brings all of this to pass, destroys Gentile world power in that respect. Israel then placed not at the tail but at the head of the nations. And we continue that thought on into chapter 9. And here's God making a covenant with Noah, foreshadowing the covenant, the new covenant that God is going to make with Israel in that coming day. Now, there's a problem in theology. It's not really theology. It's ideology in the churches today that God has made that new covenant with the church. Covenants have nothing to do with Christians. Christians are totally separated from the Mosaic economy. The old covenant was made with Israel. It had to do with rules and regulations governing the people of God in the theocracy. The new covenant, the same way, has to do with Israel in a coming theocracy. Now, the old covenant, the difference in the two, the new covenant will be written in their hearts. You can read about it different places in Scripture. Ezekiel, even the book of Hebrews, deals with the New Covenant. Uh, Jeremiah has uh, quite a bit to say about it. But the New Covenant will be made with Israel, and what position does that place Israel in? What do you think the next thing relative to the actions of uh, Noah might be as we continue in Genesis 9? Well, we'll keep on reading and see in just a moment. His first action was to build an altar unto the Lord. Then you find these intervening things uh, that we've gone over. But I want to pick up down in verse 18, Genesis 9, 18. <clears throat> and the sons of Noah that went forth out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. See, listed again in the reverse order of their birth. Now, I've read that to... to to catch what's stated after this statement. Look at the end of the verse. And Ham is the father of Canaan. Now why in the world would this be singled out? Turn over, I'm, I'm asking that for a reason. Turn over to the next uh, chapter and uh, let's look at uh, a genealogy of Ham. Verse 6, 10, 6. And the sons of Ham... Cush, Mizraim, has to do with Egypt, and Foot and Canaan. Now here's the fourth, the, the, uh, I'm, I was about to say the fourth son of Ham, but he's listed fourth in this list. And he's singled out at the time of the end of the flood, back in verse 18 of chapter 9, where it states, and the sons of Noah that went forth out of the ark were, now you have the three sons of Noah, but then you have a son of Ham mentioned, and it is seemingly the fourth son of Ham. Why in the world would God look down a line of three sons and go to the fourth, and that son be brought to mind at this point immediately after the flood? Well, Remember about the reverse order, that the sons are listed as to their birth. 
Now look at 10.6. And the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, and Put, and Canaan. Canaan is the firstborn, not Cush. They're born in the reverse order that they're uh, listed. Canaan would be the eldest. It's possible and it seems likely that Canaan was born on the ark. I don't know that. But Canaan was the firstborn, and when you get down to the curse, notice verse 25. Cursed be Canaan. All the commentators, they try to talk about look overlooking the first three sons, going to the fourth, and cursing the fourth. No, this is the only son that, uh, that uh, Ham had at the time. They didn't go down the line and curse the fourth. It was the only son he had. And the curse couldn't fall on Ham directly because God had previously blessed Ham, the three sons of Noah. Therefore, he curses the son, not the father, but the curse would, well, we'll, we'll, we'll forget that. I'm not talking about this. I'm just pointing out how the genealogies uh, run and so forth. Uh, now, back up to verse uh, 20, 19, 20. I'm in chapter 9, verse 20. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine, was drunken, was uncovered within his tent. This is the first thing mentioned about Noah's actions after he came out of the ark and uh, built an altar and offered sacrifices. The very next thing that is mentioned, and really within the... Uh, it's uh, the rest of what's mentioned has to do with Noah planting a vineyard. That is, he became drunk, and then you have Ham looking upon his father's nakedness and so forth. Now, why, why would something like this be mentioned? Uh, Noah planting a vineyard and uh, drinking wine from the vineyard. It's within the keeping of the typology of what we're looking at here. How long did it take Noah to plant a vineyard and uh, grow, wine, uh, grow grapes and make wine from the grapes? Now, he didn't make grape juice from the uh, grapes. He made wine. Christ didn't make a good brand of grape juice in John 2. He made wine. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk to you, teetotal and Baptist, about wine, and I hope I can get a point across here. Wine is wine. Grape juice is grape juice. They're not the same thing. When I went down to Australia about 15 years ago, I've mentioned this. I don't, yeah, I mentioned this. I, I'll repeat it. Down there, the, uh, they seem to want to say, at least the Baptist minister I was staying with, that Christ did not make wine. He made grape juice in John 2. Christ wouldn't make anything with alcoholic content in it. Well, at any rate, let's, uh, let's look at this whole thing. Spend a little bit of time here, and I believe you'll understand why this is the first thing mentioned, and really everything revolves that's mentioned on through chapter, uh, uh, this chapter. Well, I don't say everything, but a number of things I shouldn't say because we're, we're going to talk about Japheth and uh, Shem in just a minute. And it's, uh, they would be somewhat separated from this. 
but uh, quite a bit uh, evolves out of this. All right. How long did it take Noah to plant a vineyard and have grapes to make wine? I got to checking on this. So how long would it take an individual to grow a vineyard and produce grapes, enough grapes from that vineyard to uh, make wine from the grapes? Well, I was a little bit surprised. It could actually be done if a person had the proper, uh, had the seedling, not, not just a seed, but say a cut from another piece, which Noah could very well have had. He either had, he either took cuttings on the ark with him, knowing that he was going to plant a vineyard, or he took seeds to grow that vineyard. He had to take one or the other because they weren't there when he came off the ark. They was totally destroyed. Let's say he took cutlings from a vineyard which he would have had prior to this time. He could have had grapes and made wine within a year. We're talking about something very early after he came off the ark. If seeds, I don't really know. It would have taken several years probably. But let's say he did have cutlings. Let's say we're talking about only a year later. And you can see right away that Ham couldn't have had four sons. There's not any way. We're talking about a reverse order in accord with their birth when we look at uh, in chapter 10 and see how uh, at what order the sons of Ham were born. And that's in perfect keeping with the sons of Noah. That's in perfect keeping with the sons of Terah in the latter part of chapter 11 down through uh, uh, Abraham, uh, what Haran, uh, Nahor, I believe that's the uh, uh, way there. That may not be the exact order, but I believe those are the sons. You can turn it over and check me. I may be wrong on uh, one or more, but that's neither here nor there. Well, let's just let's just make sure that uh, I mean, I may see what happened here. Uh, Ab- these are the generations of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. That's it. That's your order, and they're uh, listed in the reverse order of their birth, and there's 70 years between the last and the first in the uh, uh, time in which they were born. All right. Again, we're looking at why God, the Spirit of God, moved Moses to record this incident immediately after he came off of the ark. Turn to the, just drop your place there, you can find it really easy. Turn to the book of Joel. Let's look at something. Then we're going to Matthew. Then we're going to, back to Genesis, but not where we are. I'm going to take you on a little journey here. These are not the only places we could go, but these are somewhat easy uh, places where I can illustrate what I want to show you. In the book of Joel, we have... uh, a picture of Gentile nations being allowed to come into the land, that is one or more nations, really it goes all the way back to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar uh, being typified by a locust plague or um, uh, I could use another word, a metaphor. But uh, we have a picture of a locust plague as a metaphor for Babylon coming in and then uh, all down through the intervening years. Israel in Gentile, uh, driven out into Gentile lands, the land of Israel allowed to lie desolate because of disobedience. 
and harlotry would be the main problem within this disobedience. In fact, Israel was to be separate, separate itself from the Gentile nations, just like the church is to be separate today. Israel was not to be reckoned among the nations as the church is not to be reckoned among the world. You could draw a number of parallels there. But Israel, just like the church, had a different idea. They started going out and having illicit relations with the nations. How can a nation have illicit relations with a nation? Well, how can the church have illicit uh, conduct relations, you might say, with the world? Same, same thought. All right. Look at verse 6, Joel 1, 6. For a nation is, well, verse 5. Verse 5 would be a better place to start. Awake, ye drunkards. It's talking about the Jewish people. And weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine. Because, look at that, the new wine. It's cut off. Because of your disobedience, the new wine is cut off from you. And you keep on reading through Joel. I'll just call your attention to some of it. And it keeps going back and forth between this, the wine they're now allowed to drink, the new wine which they will drink, be allowed to drink during the coming Messianic era, which is seen right at the end of Joel. Verse 6, a nation has come upon my land, strong without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion. He has torn the cheek teeth of a great lion. He has laid my vine waste and barked my fig trees, just stripped it bare. He's made it clean here, cast it away. The branches made white. The picture's a locust plague coming through, eating away at a tree, eating the bark off, just eating right down to the white of the tree. A picture of the way that Israel has been desolated. And the new wine, look at verse 10. The field is wasted, the land mourneth, for the corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. And you could, uh, we won't uh, belabor the, the thought of this, but you keep on reading and you find more of this in the book of Joel, the, uh, like verse uh, 222, right at the end of the verse. The fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. But in, uh, it all builds up to chapter 3 with what is often called the Battle of Armageddon after Christ returns, treads the wine press. Look how chapter 3 ends, verse 17 and following. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy. There shall be no strangers pass through her anymore. It shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine. The hills shall flow with milk. All the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters. A fountain shall come forth out of the house of the Lord. Shall water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall be a desolation. Egypt shall be a desolate wilderness. For the violence against the children of Judah. Because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed. Look at the end of that verse. For the Lord dwelleth in Zion. That's the way it's all going to end. 
and we keep hearing about new wine in connection with the end. That's what is foreshadowed in Genesis 9 when Noah came out and drank wine. But we're not finished. I'm just I'm going to take you on a journey and we'll get back to 9 in a little bit. Now in John chapter 2, you can turn there if you like. It has to do with the first sign. <clears throat> it has to do with a marriage in Cana of Galilee. It has to do with Christ taking six water pots, uh, telling them to fill these pots with water, six earthen water pots, and his turning the water to wine, and it was a type wine that the uh, master of the feast said that was the best wine that had been kept until now. See, at these feasts, they drank the better wine first, and then the wine that wasn't that good Toward the end of the feast, when they were somewhat intoxicated, and it didn't matter what they were drinking. But the order had been reversed here uh, to some extent. They had drank probably good wine at the first, but the wine that Christ made was the best wine that they had. Now what's pictured here? Exactly the same thing that we're looking at. This first sign has to do, remember the days, it occurs on the seventh day, the seventh 1,000 year period, and it has to do with the new wine out of the book of Joel. In the antitype of Genesis 9, it has to do with the wine that Noah thought he was making, but he didn't make it. He thought he was making it, but within that typology, move it out into the antitype, and it has to do with the day that Israel, the new, the new wine will be restored, the wine which Christ made. What about that wine? Well, let's look at Matthew 26. What's this all about? The wine that Christ made. Foreshadowing this type, or not type, but sign, there's a close, close relationship between type and sign. Jonah is referred to via both, the sign of the prophet Jonah, and Jonah is also a type, so they're very closely related. But uh, Matthew 26. Now this subject has already been brought up to some extent in the course of the conference. So I'm uh, covering uh, some material that's already been covered, as Jim covered some material today that's already been covered. But that's fine. We'll go over it in a little bit different way. Jim went over it in a little bit different way, and uh, we can learn from things of that nature. All right, this is what's called the Last Supper, shortly before the crucifixion. In verse, uh, you're at Matthew 26, go down to verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Literally all of you drank from it. Oh, it's uh, not, not, not really drink all of it, but all of you, it's a cup and all of you drink from it. 
For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a promise. He is going to one day drink wine with them again in his Father's kingdom. And it will be the type wine that Christ made at Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2. What type wine was that? All right. Where would I find the antitype or the fulfillment? It's really within a, within a type that we see the fulfillment of what Christ alluded to or was talking about when he said that he wouldn't drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until that day when he drank it new with them in his father's kingdom. Where do I find a reference to that? You see, think a little bit. Where would you go in scripture to show Christ drinking wine with his disciples again in his father's kingdom? There's one place that stands out above all others. Turn back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 14. And this evening we'll go back over this briefly, but I'm not going to spend this same time on the same subject. But what we'll go back over briefly again is seen in the whole of the chapter this occurs after the battle of the kings. Typically, this occurs after the destruction of Gentile world power, which will occur following Christ's return, following the national restoration of Israel, which will involve their repentance and their national conversion when they look upon their Messiah. It will follow their regathering back to the land with Messiah in their midst, then he is going to bring, he's going to drag these Gentile armies into the Middle East for one purpose, to destroy them. The battle of the kings occurs, and it's after the battle of the kings, out in the antitype, after Christ tramples these Gentile armies under his feet, who is this that's coming from Edom with dyed garments? That's in Isaiah, what, 63, I believe. Uh, I that uh, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And he states that he's trodden the winepress alone. He's coming from Edom. Apparently it will stretch all the way down to the southern part of the land, maybe over 100 miles. I believe it's 180 down there. That figure comes to mind that's out of the book of Revelation now that I think about it all right it's after the battle of the kings out in the antitype after he treads the wine press that this occurs look at verse 17 and the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedalimer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba which is the king's dale and Melchizedek, 
Who is Melchizedek? Who was this man? Nobody knows. Many have tried to identify him with Shem. Shem was still alive at this time. We're not told if you could identify him, you would only uh, militate against what uh, the Spirit of God has chosen not to tell. There's no way you can identify him. He's mentioned two times in the Old Testament, here and in the 110th Psalm. He's mentioned nine times in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. Both times he's mentioned in the Old Testament, they're in Messianic passages. This is a Messianic one of the two, the 110th Psalm, a Messianic passage. The Lord has said to, uh, God has said to his son, you sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Then it talks about his ruling in the day of a, a coming day of power. Then you get down to verse 4. Thou art a priest forever, really olam, a long period of time. It's a thousand years. Thou art a priest for this period of time after the order of Melchizedek. Again, Christ is not exercising the Melchizedek priesthood today. He is a priest today after the order of Melchizedek, just as he is king. But he's not exercising either office. Christ or Melchizedek was a king priest. Christ today is exercising a priestly ministry that's patterned more after the order of Aaron. He's fulfilling that aspect of a priestly ministry. But one day he's going to leave that sanctuary, come forth as a king priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then he's going to exercise this office, exercise the office of king. He was born king, but hasn't yet exercised that office. One day he will, when he exercises the Melchizedek priesthood. Now let's read verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hands. And he gave him tithes of all. Well, we'll stop our reading there. Here's Melchizedek typifying Christ out in that coming day when he brings forth, when he drinks anew with his disciples, typified by Abraham. Abraham really typifying the nation of Israel. And Christ in that day, Look at verse 19. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram. In that day Christ is going to bless not only Israel, but the nations through Israel. And it's in that day. Just as Melchizedek brought forth bread and wine, blessed Abraham, that Christ is going to drink this wine anew with his disciples in his kingdom. It won't be the same type of wine that Melchizedek brought forth. It'll be the type of wine that Noah thought he was making. It'll be the type of wine promised in the book of Joel, the new wine awaiting Israel. It will be the type of wine that Christ made at Cana of Galilee. Man can't make this wine today. Something happened 
at the time of the flood when that canopy of water came down from above, allowing the sun's, sun's rays to come through. Before the flood, evidently Noah could make a type wine that was either similar to or the same as a type wine Christ made in Cana of Galilee, a type wine that would make the heart merry, a type wine, a non-intoxicating, so to speak, type wine. The wine man makes today is an intoxicating type wine. I'd suggest if you drink a little wine in the evening or some such thing, you go easy on it because it will do something to you today. And Noah, it did something to Noah in Genesis 9. You can be turning back there if you like because I'm going to pick up right after this, move through 10 and 11. Chapters 10 and first part of chapter 11, not take too much of your time because I can do this pretty quick. I want to spend quite a bit of time here on this wine. I also want to say something about the latter part of chapter 9, dealing with uh, Shem and uh, Japheth. <clears throat> but in that coming uh, day, Well, perhaps I should rephrase that sentence. I want to talk about uh, Noah just a moment. So much has been written about Noah coming out, drinking wine, getting drunk, and uh, all of this, and uh, faulting Noah for doing such, and castigating Noah, and on and on they go with Noah's drunkenness. Would it interest you to know that in all likelihood and in all probability and in all a few other things, uh, let's just say that I don't, I don't understand from seeing what has, what evidently occurred before this and what occurred at this time, I don't see any possible way that Noah could have known that wine would make him drunk. He had probably never been drunk before. He had, drank, uh, he had drunk wine for hundreds of years. He had had this vineyard out here. This was the first thing he did when he came uh, out of the ark, aside from uh, building an altar and sacrifices. Grew a vineyard, made wine. He wanted some wine. Before the flood, it was something that uh, made the heart merry. Probably uh, added to health, uh, any number of things. After the flood... It would do something uh, probably uh, totally unknown to him. It made him drunk. He lay naked, uh, uncovered in his tent, Ham looking upon his father's nakedness, that type thing, resulted in all of this. What I'm saying is this. Wine today is one thing. Wine before the flood was something else that man will see again after that canopy of water's placed back up there. See, you have a restitution of all things. Christ could make that kind of wine, even with the canopy down. Of course, he's God manifest in the flesh. God can do that. Man can't do it today. But out in the coming age, evidently, man will be able to plant a vineyard and make this type of wine himself. But one day, nevertheless, one day, Christ is going to drink wine again with his disciples, really the whole of the nation of Israel, in the kingdom, and this is a type wine it will be, the type wine Noah thought he was making. You can study that out, and uh, you'll see that uh, 
I know you'll see I'm not wrong. I have to be right, so let's just leave it at that. No, I've said that very lightly. Always check out a speaker. Don't take his word for it. Man, something I hate to hear is uh, somebody saying, well, my preacher believes this and that about what you're talking about. He knows more than I do, so I believe him. You don't want to do that. Know enough about your Bible that you can check the speaker out. I often tell people that I took uh, all these Greek courses and some Hebrew in school, so I didn't have to take the preacher's word for it. I could check him out. And I find out so many times that he has no idea what he's talking about. I find out so many times he's just making it up, things of that nature. I mean, a preacher makes something up, you better believe it. I, I got... Uh, I got a letter in the mail one day. Uh, it's been uh, quite a while back. A uh, minister sent me a whole bunch of Greek words, and he added the definitions of them out there, and he had put the definitions down in accord with what he wanted them to say. None of them even matched. The words didn't even mean what he said they meant. But he, made it, he, he just made it up so he could preach what he wanted to preach. You know what one person said about that preacher? That's the greatest Greek theologian I've ever run across in my life. Thing is, he didn't know a thing about Greek. He was just fooling the people. So be careful. Check people out. You go on down in this chapter, you find uh, chapter 9. You find that the, uh, of the three sons of Noah, only one of them had a god. And that was Shem. Now here's where we start to find the... Uh, genealogy from uh, Adam down to uh, Abraham being singled out. Twenty genera- You have 20 generations from Adam to Abraham. Ten generations from Adam to Noah. Ten more from Noah to uh, Abraham. And uh, one of Noah's sons is singled out to be the only son with a God. So let's, re- let's uh, see how it reads. Uh, verse 25, well, let's read verse 26. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth. There's nothing said about Japheth having a God or Ham. It's only Shem. God shall enlarge Japheth. He shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Canaan shall be his servant. Now, from Shem... You find nine generations, Abraham. Then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. Are you aware that Israel is the only nation on the face of the earth with a God? It starts with Shem and goes down through a genealogy seen in chapter 11. Look at uh, chapter 11 beginning with verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old, begot said two years after the flood. Arphaxad said was really the third born of Shem. You pick that up back in chapter uh, uh, 10. Uh, you, you have uh, five sons, and, and he's right in the middle. So it doesn't matter whether you start at the beginning or the end. You pick him up as the third born, but really you start at the end and, and go back. Now, Arphaxad, then you move through Arphaxad, Sala, Eber, Pelag. Pelag's an interesting person down, I believe, the fifth uh, 
generation down in verse 18. We'll talk about him in just a moment. But you go all the way down to Terah in verse 26, verse 20, uh, well, verse 26, it states that he had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, Haran would be the oldest, Abram the youngest, born really when uh, Terah was 130. All right, we drop uh, back uh, behind that. And uh, seeing Israel as the only nation with a God having descended from Shem in this manner down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons, you find numerous places in the Old Testament beyond that. The Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Israel. It's just the Old Testament is filled with statements, statements uh, uh, having to do with Israel and her God. Israel is not to be reckoned among the nations. One of it's in uh, Balaam's, uh, one of his prophecies, that statement. Now, in the book of Psalms, let's look at a couple of places in Psalms. You can find your place in, back in Genesis. I'm going to come back there very briefly in just a moment. If you're getting a little bit antsy, uh, bear with me 15 minutes. We'll, uh, I'll be through. I promise you. I've always, and, uh, and as you know, I always keep my promises. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Right. All right, the book of Psalms. I believe I want I want 95 or 6 for one of them and uh, but let me turn over because I have some references written at that point on mine to be sure I get it right on one or more I want. It's 965 is one I want, but uh Another I want is uh, in chapter 33, so if you're in 96, hold your place there. In Psalm uh, 33. It's in Psalm 33:12. It says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And the people uh, that whom he had chosen for his own inheritance. A person needs to keep on reading if he's going to take, that is, he shouldn't take the first part of that verse until he keeps on reading and sees who it's talking about. Or read the context along with this verse to see who God is talking about. For example, take the first part of that verse by itself. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I was amazed to see a Jewish publication come out some months ago and an article in the Jewish publication where the editor of that magazine, who should have known better, was talking about Gentile nations and these nations having a God, using this verse here, blessed is the nation, and he was referring to Gentile nations having a God. But read the rest of that verse. And the people. Well, really, the, the latter part of that verse explains the first. You have a Hebrew parallelism. Leave out the and. It's been, you can see it's in italics. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his inheritance. 
there's only one group of people that can refer to, and that is Israel. Gentile nations do not have, well, they do have a God. We'll look at it in just a minute. A look at Psalm 72, 18. Psalm 72, 18. <clears throat> Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doth wondrous things. Now look at Psalm 96. <clears throat> In Psalm 96, for all the gods of the nations are what? Idols. That's, that's fine. Another thought with the word that's used here in the Hebrew text, all the gods of the nations are nothing. Another thought is demons. They are nothing compared to the one true and living God. The, the Gentile nations do not have a God aside from being compared to the one true and living God nothing their God is whatever's out there it's idols it's uh, demonic beings do you know how the Pledge of Allegiance of the United States goes since about uh, mid 50's when they added something to it one nation under God I'm sorry. That's not what scripture says. They should really have never added that. People get all uptight when you talk about deleting that. Some, uh, some of the uh, people that don't want uh, the thought of prayer in the schools, prayer at public meetings, any number of things. Man, out in, out in Arizona in the Phoenix paper the last few days, there there's some people raising Cain because they prayed at a public meeting. Uh, and uh, it's that type thing. And because of that, people get all uptight when, uh, and refer to our pledge. Really, they shouldn't. Uh, the nation, this nation doesn't have a God. The only way that a nation can have a God is to go to the nation with a God. And that's what's stated in Genesis 9. Now turn back to Genesis 9, and we'll move quickly into 10 and 11 and be through. Now all at this point, spiritual blessings were to flow through the only son with a God, through Shem. And it's this way from uh, this point forward in Scripture. Down through uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, through the nation of Israel, God will allow Gentile nations, that is, he will bless Gentile nations only one way, and that is through the one son of Noah, through his descendants, through the nation of Israel, the one nation that he's chosen to work through to bless these nations. And of course, uh, through the seed of Abraham down the seed of this one nation, which is Christ. And the only way that the United States can claim to have a God is to go to Israel, but there's a problem. 
Israel is in unbelief today and not in a position to bless the nations in that respect. But out in the coming Messianic era, after Israel has been restored, then the Gentile nations can go to Israel and have a God through Israel. In that respect, be blessed through Israel. Now, the church is a little bit different story today. The church has a God because of their position in Christ and because of their connection to Israel. Do you see how it all works? It's very simple. See it God's way. You'll, uh, you'll come out ahead. Now, as far as... Uh, Japheth is concerned. Well, Shem, uh, not Shem, but Ham, the curse, that curse will be lifted according to uh, the end of Zechariah at the beginning of the millennium. But now uh, Japheth, it says Japheth will be enlarged, but Japheth has to dwell in the tents of Shem. That is, he has to go to Shem relative to spiritual blessings. Ham would have to do the same. Now, being enlarged, that's generally understood and is probably correct relative to his uh, progeny. For example, descendants of Japheth would be mainly European, uh, on over into Asia, Russia, that type uh, thing. You would be, we'd be mainly descendants, maybe all descendants of uh, Shem. Not Shem, but uh, Japheth. In that respect, there could be... Uh, Descendant of a couple of maybe here of Shem, I don't know. That'd be a Jewish lineage, and there would be certain other descendants of Shem that wouldn't really be looked upon as Jews. Arabs would be that way. Some think the Chinese, some even think the American Indian might be a descendant of Shem in that respect. I don't know that. It doesn't really matter. But Japheth is being enlarged and uh, spread across the, the uh, earth in that respect. Now, what we have here, coming uh, out of the flood, the end of the flood, foreshadowing Israel, coming out of the tribulation, the new wine, and Shem, the God uh, Shem brought to the forefront, because in that day Israel is going to be brought to the forefront as the one, just as Shem was the only son with a God, Israel, the only nation with a God, and in order for Japheth or Ham to receive spiritual blessings, they had to go to Shem. In order for the nations out in that coming day to receive spiritual blessings, where are they going to have to go? They're going to have to go to the Shemites, to the nation of Israel. That's the way it's set up in Scripture. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. Just take it up with the author. Now, it's right after this that we have... A descendant of Ham uh, building uh, several cities. We won't go into all of that, but one of these uh, that's uh, down uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, right in there in uh, chapter 10. And one of these cities was uh, Babel, Babylon. Here's the first king of Babylon coming, uh, being brought out. Now, Antichrist is to be the last king of Babylon. Babylon is to be... It's really to be rebuilt after some fashion. It's to be the center of government in the end time. So we have the first mention of Babylon here, the first king of Babylon. And out ahead, Antichrist will be the last king of Babylon. It'll be the fourth and final part of Daniel's image in chapter 2. It'll be the 
fourth and final beast in chapter 7. There's, there's so much about this in the book of Daniel, about this final form of the image, the fourth uh, beast in chapter 7. And this has to do with the final form of what we're seeing, the beginning of in Genesis. See, the seed plot is here, and it's going to turn out exactly in the antitype like it developed in the type. So let's see how it developed right quickly in the type in chapter 11. Now, chapter, it goes through chapter 10. Then it goes into chapter, it drops back in chapter 11. Don't try to continue and think chapter 11 is a chronology from the end of chapter 10. Chapter 11, the first part of chapter 11, is commentary on what's been covered in chapter 10. Now, in chapter 11, the whole earth was of one language, one speech. It came to pass as they journeyed, now truly toward the east. And as they found a plain in the land of Shinar, they dwelt there, and they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let's build a city, a tower, whose top may reach into the heavens. And they weren't trying to build a tower to heaven. It seemed it was a central point. It could have been a point of worship. It, it, was, a uni, it was a point, uh, a tower having to do with unification to keep them together. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. They came, uh, the Lord came down, take a look at this. He didn't like what he saw. He gave them different languages so that they couldn't understand one another. One segment, one language, one another segment. Then he drove them out, placed them in different parts of the earth. Then he divided the earth. Now I'm just uh, telling you what happened between what, what happens in chapters 10 and 11. I'm not reading. I'm just telling you what, what uh, the Lord did when he came down to take a look at this. So if you didn't follow me, let me very briefly start back a few sentences. The Lord came down to look at what man and all his uh, mighty power had done. And he didn't like what man had done. He didn't want man unified in one place. He confused their languages. This is the origin of all the languages. Maybe not all of them, but a great number of them. The beginning of it, if not the end of it. Then he scattered them, placed them in different parts of the earth. Then he separated these parts of the earth, the land masses, one land mass for another. And that occurred during the days of Pelag, back in chapter 10. That's, uh, let's see, uh, verse 25. Unto Eber were born two sons, and name of one was Pelag. In his days was the earth divided. Now the word divided has been used prior to that. It's used following that. They're not the same uh, words in the Hebrew text. Uh, one has to do with a division by language. The one that's used here has to do with a division of the earth itself. And when you compare it with the usage elsewhere, it's evidently a division by water. That is, uh, God pulled land masses apart, water between. One good example that I could provide would be take a look on the map, uh, a world map sometime, at the uh, west coast of Africa, the east coast of South America. They both go around exactly the same way. It's almost like they were pulled apart at one time. Well, that evidently is exactly what happened. It happened during the days of Pelag, a hundred plus years after the flood, after God had placed these, these individuals out there. 
Now look at what man's trying to do today. He's trying to bring all of this back together, unify the languages, a one world system, and we're very close to such a system. That's not a system that God cares much about. And there's a reason for that. And I'll give you the reason in just a minute. But God is going to come down one of these days and take a look. And do you know what he's going to do? You can read about it right here. He's going to do exactly the same thing he did back there. He's going to split them up. And he's going to place them in different parts of the earth. And he's going to do it for the same reason he did it back here. Why did he do it back here? Well, take a look at uh, two places in Scripture, and then I'll be through. Deuteronomy 32.8. That's the first one. <clears throat> All right, I'll take just a second. I uh, want everyone to see this. And then we're going to the book of Acts. Deuteronomy 32, 8. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Now this was hundreds of years before the nation of Israel even existed. Why would God do something like this? Look ahead and set these individuals in separate sections of the earth according to the number of the children of Israel. There's a reason, a definite reason, a particular reason. Go over to Acts 17. I'll show you the reason. Acts 17, verses 26 and 27. Again, I'll wait just a moment. I want you to see this also. It connects with the other. Acts 17, 26 and 27. And hath made of one blood, or one person, that's Adam, all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation. Now look at the next verse. That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. What was one reason the nation of Israel was called into existence? They were called into existence to be God's witness to the Gentile nations throughout the earth. This is what the 144,000 are going to do during the tribulation. Then with the conversion of the entire nation, they're going to go worldwide reaching these Gentile nations. And God, their Christ, when he returns, is going to do exactly the same thing once again. After he destroys Gentile world power, he's going to take the nations which survived the tribulation, both saved and unsaved mainly unsaved. There'll be multitudes of them. So many people teach that only saved people are going into the millennium. That's a misunderstanding of Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. They need to go back and reread those verses. Now, 
He's going to come back. He's not going to like what he sees. He's going to destroy it once again. He's going to take these individuals, these unsaved people, place them back out, scatter them throughout the earth, different places. There's going to be a restoration of all things. The water's going to be placed back up there, which will change land masses. Whether there's going to be another division of land, I don't know. You don't know. But why is he placing these individuals out there? Well, Acts 127 tells you. He's placing them out there. Also, Deuteronomy 32.8. He will place them out there, just like in history. According to the number of the children of Israel, it should be sons of Israel, that they might be, that is, the converted nation of Israel might be able just to go out throughout the earth, a nation here, a nation here, 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 a people here, here, and reach these people with the message of the one true and living God. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. This is what will happen when peace comes to the city of peace, to these people that go around saying shalom now, but don't they do not realize the true meaning of shalom. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that you've revealed these things to us through the prophets, and we do pray for that coming day when peace will reign on the earth through your people, because then your people will be at peace. It's in Christ's name.